following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. Thanks to see you tonight. We've been looking at Ajahn Chah's book now for a while, and uh, the book is Food for the Heart. And we're in the last section of the book where they've taken some of his talks around wisdom. Panya is the Pali word. And uh, this particular chapter is called Living with the Cobra. And you know, probably you know, most of you know that in the way the Buddha taught, the real bad guy, you know, if there is an evil, evil is a pattern in the mind where the mind gets attached or gets identified or fixated, holds tight to a view or idea or belief. And it's, in a, in a sense, this is the birth of all stressful states, all suffering states, difficult states of mind. And, of course, leads to all kinds of unskillful behaviors in the world that have all kinds of ripple effects as we, our behaviors, our actions affect others, lead that, trigger their own contracted, fixated, grasping states of mind, which, you know, all kinds of negative reverberations through the world. So they use this image sometimes of grabbing a snake. It's not that snakes are inherently evil, which we tend to make them evil, but the problem isn't snakes. The problem is grasping snakes or tripping over them or not being wise with them. Then we have problems. Then we get bit. But if you just leave snakes alone, they come and they go, right? And so this is how it is, not just with the difficult things in life or the things we really want in life, but really the training is for all of our experience to have this relationship in this chapter in a very provocative way. I think Ajahn Chah talks about the whole world being like the cobra. I'll read a little bit. The teaching that we study and practice here at Wapapang, that's the name of his monastery in Thailand, is the practice to be free of suffering in the cycle of birth and death. So it's not that living in a world that comes and goes where there's birth, there's death, there's this, there's that. That's not inherently the problem. It's learning how to be free from suffering in the midst of this changing world. He goes on, he says, in order to do this practice, you must regard all the various activities of the mind, all those you like and all those you dislike, in the same way you would regard a cobra. The cobra is an extremely poisonous snake, poisonous enough to kill you if it should bite. And so it is with our moods, the moods that we like are poisonous, the moods that we dislike are poisonous, both prevent our mind from being free. Both hinder our understanding of the truth as it is taught by the Buddha. So that's a pretty provocative statement. You know, all the moods we like and all the mood, moods we don't like are like a poisonous snake. It's not even that the good mood or the bad mood, the pleasant mood or the uh, unpleasant mood itself is 
like the snake. It's the liking of it or the disliking of it. Or another way to say it is when we start to take things personally. There's nothing wrong with liking common ground, but when you think about your practice or think about these teachings or think about any aspect of your life that you like, if the mind gets identified with the liking, then immediately we've split the world world apart. It's sort of what I like, and there's all those things that threaten it. Like, well, maybe this isn't as good as I think it is. And that's a threat. Or maybe I'm not good enough to do this practice. All the different ways that we can experience our mind, experience our thoughts, experience other people's ideas of us, that threaten what we like. Or we get threatened by what we don't like, too, like it's going to last longer. We can't get rid of it. It's really who I am. So as soon as the mind gets fixated on liking or disliking, then everything in the world becomes a problem. You really create the fixation, whatever it is, becomes a problem. We think about, you know, how nice it is that it's spring. Then when it gets cold and wet, like it is tonight, then it's a problem because we were fixated, we were attached to the idea of spring. It's going to be warm. It's going to be nice out. He goes on, Ajahn Chah says, Thus we must try to maintain our mindfulness throughout the day and night. Whatever you may be doing, be it standing, sitting, lying down, speaking, or whatever, you should do with mindfulness. When you are able to establish this mindfulness, this clear, relaxed presence, right? You will find uh, you will find that there will arise clear comprehension associated with it. So when we're mindful, clearly aware, then the mind has this opportunity to comprehend. Oh, it's like this. So that comprehension, it's really the mind is mindfully aware and it's comprehending, it's understanding how it is that things unfold. It's understanding we say sometimes in terms of cause and effect, or that things unfold lawfully, naturally, according to the different supporting causes and conditions that are there in that moment. Some, in a sense, we bring to the table, like how I'm paying attention is one of the causes and conditions that affect how things unfold, but there are a lot of other causes and conditions that make this moment the way that it is. So mindfulness leads to clearly comprehending. When these two conditions, with these two conditions, bring about wisdom, right? Because when we're clearly comprehending, then wisdom expresses itself, which is we know better how to relate, how to respond, how to be in the moment, because we're clearly comprehending how it is and what ways of relating lead to things getting tight and contracted. What ways of relating lead to things opening up, the heart releasing, the heart being more free, more alive? It's not that we, you know, intentionally want to end up in contracted states, right? Does any of us really want to end up in contracted states? But we're misreading, we're misperceiving how it is. And so we think by me fantasizing about something 
or my me revisiting some traumatic time in my life or some pain and getting caught up, getting attached, getting in some reactive state. We somehow think that by doing that, I'm going to free up the heart. We're always looking for a release. It's not that somehow we're ignorant of what it, what release is or what that release is feels good and that contraction stress feels bad. We definitely know that. But we misread how things are unfolding and we think by worrying, freedom will come. But it doesn't. You would think we'd know. We think by craving something that freedom will come, or by hating someone or something, freedom, ease, release, happiness will come. So by clearly comprehending, being mindful in a continuous way, the mind clearly comprehending, comprehending, then wisdom arises, the mind understands, oh, the way, the, the reason that this heart is now contracted, is now stressed, is now unhappy, is because of what it was doing. It was getting identified. It was constructing contracted stories about who I am. And now this is the result of all of that. It feels like this now. The mind, the heart is entangled in this way, heavy in this way, not seeing any way out in this way. Oh, oh. So that's that's called wisdom. The mind... Through that comprehension, it really understands, it has insight. Oh, when you do this, you get this. And in the same way, if the mind is being free of attachment, things are coming and going, but the mind isn't taking it personally, just present, intimate, but not getting attached, and it starts to feel lighter and more free, less attached, less caught up, less sure that things should be this way or that way, but willing to just let things be the way that they are, responding in that place, nimbly reading, like when you respond and mindfulness is continuous, you see what's skillful and unskillful, and you adapt and adjust. You Slowly the way of being, the way of responding or acting in the world comes more and more in line, in line in the sense of not leading to tension, not leading the heavy states of mind, emotional states of mind. And then that wisdom, that's wisdom, it's like when we see that, when we comprehend that, we see, oh, this is the way to be free. This is the way to be a happy, skillful, loving human being. So we have mindfulness leading to clear comprehension, mindfulness and clear comprehension leading to wisdom, like insight in, in how to be happy. And then Ajahn Chah says, thus mindfulness, clear comprehension and wisdom will work together. You will be like one who is awake both day and night. They are teachings, a little later he says, they are teachings that through practice can be made to arise and be known in our heart. Right. So it, we're interested in it arising right here. And then several paragraphs later, he writes or says, This kind of scene will give rise to a tranquil feeling of dispassion toward the world. This is interesting. We hear something like this, dispassion toward the world. And just the way, given the way we're conditioned, we're very suspicious, like, well, that sounds, that doesn't sound like fun to do, to be dispassionate towards the world. Because if I let go of my passion, 
my attachment, my desire for nice experiences, exciting experiences, what will I be left with? And this is really the important crux of spiritual life. And it can, we can really misunderstand that. So we have to reflect deeply, not just on these words that I'm about to say, so I read more, but taking these words and then directly applying them to our life. So we're reflecting our, on our own experience directly. So it will give rise to a tranquil feeling of dispassion toward the world. Such a feeling arises when we see that actually there is nothing worth wanting. There is only a rising and passing away, a being born followed by a dying. Things coming, things leaving. Wednesday afternoon it arose, and now it ceased. It doesn't exist anymore. So maybe you had an exciting Wednesday afternoon. And so there it was. It was there for a while, and now it stopped. Or maybe you had a really difficult Wednesday afternoon. And you know, when that difficult experience was coming our way, like we had to go to this meeting and we really didn't want to go to the meeting, or we had to go to the dentist and we didn't want to go to the dentist, it really felt like a huge problem. But we miss, we keep missing that that experience. It came and then it went. Just think about how many terrible, difficult experiences we've had in life. Every single one of them have come and gone. Think about how many wonderful, beautiful, pleasant experiences we've had in this life already. And where, what is the obvious truth of them? They've come and then they've gone. And you see how that makes the mind a little cool, doesn't it? Like about the next terrible thing that's going to come, or the next beautiful thing that's going to come our way. It's not that it's not pleasant, or it's not that some experiences aren't unpleasant, but the drama the resistance, the attachment, the excitement, the passion we have about pleasant and unpleasant, it's really arises because of a misreading, a misperceiving. It seems so big. You know, the thought that I'm going to be going home soon and I can have anything to eat that's in my refrigerator, that can loom big. Except when I consider that, like how many times I've had that sense treat of eating what I want to eat, you know, whatever it might be. You know, it lasts for a while, and then I'm full, and then it's done with. Same with, like, entertainment or conversation or just getting in a warm bed or or just all the unpleasant thoughts of, like, having to go outside into the cold, wet weather or having to go home to an empty house or empty apartment or, you know, whatever might be really unpleasant in our experience looming in front of us. But how many times has it been there, and then it was different, you know, it was there for a while, and then it was the next thing. So, <clears throat> because the mind misunderstands, the very deep pervasive habit we have is we make a really big deal out of pleasant and unpleasant experience. And the Buddha's not saying there aren't pleasant and unpleasant experiences, or that everything's just neutral. He's not saying that. He's saying that Look at what we do with pleasant and unpleasant experience and see if it's helpful. Maybe there can just be pleasant and unpleasant experience without adding anything to it. Just let pleasant experience be pleasant and unpleasant experience be unpleasant and neutral experience be neutral. But not adding the passion, not adding the contraction, the fixation, the identification. Let me read a little bit more from this paragraph. This is, this 
is when the mind arises, arrives at letting go. Let me go back one sentence. Such a feeling arises when we see that actually there is nothing worth wanting. There is only arising and passing away, a being born followed by dying. This is when the mind arrives at letting go, letting everything go according to its own nature. Or you could substitute the phrase letting things be according to its own nature. Things arise and pass away in our mind, and we know this. When happiness arises, we know it. When dissatisfaction arises, we know it. And this knowing happiness means that we don't identify it as being ours. Right? So when we are happy, when something pleasant is arising, we know it's pleasant. We know that the mind likes it, but we don't create a sense of self that likes it that wants it to last. We just let it be pleasant. And when whatever else arises with that pleasant experience, we just realize, well, that's what that is, and that's what that is. Oh, I really want this to last. Oh, that's just a thought. That's just an attachment and a thought. And it's like this. It's really bad. I really want this to go away. Oh, that's just like this. So we're grounding the mind in the reality, as opposed to letting the mind get inflated or letting the mind construct a reality around pleasant or unpleasant experience. That's the problem, and it's a, that's that subtle distinction that's so important. The way the Buddha is teaching, he's not asking us to reject the world, because that's called hatred. That's exactly what he's teaching leads to suffering. So he's not teaching us to reject the world. He's not teaching us to grasp the world. He's teaching us or advising us to understand the world, like to connect. So when there's something pleasant or when there's something unpleasant, to deeply connect in an authentic, in a real way. Oh, it's just this. So can we be enlivened by the unpleasant experience? Because what's enlivening about unpleasant experience isn't that the unpleasantness itself is good. It's unpleasant. But what's enlivening, what's liberating is not having to do anything. That, that doesn't mean we're not... When I say not do anything, I mean in, in a psychological way, the mind doesn't feel neurotically inclined to have to, to sort of construct an identity around the difficult experience. It just does what needs to be done about it. You know, if there's something we can do to alleviate the pain, we do it. If there's nothing we can do, you know, in some, some situations... There really isn't anything to do. And we just, well, there's nothing to do. But whether there's something to do or not, we don't need to construct some edifice of me who doesn't want it this to be this way, who feels put upon because it is this way, because we know sometimes things are unpleasant. That's just how it is. In Buddhism, we talk about the eight worldly winds. And this is just the basic definition of human life. Pain and pleasure, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, praise and blame. That this is just the very definition of our lives. Sometimes it's pleasant, sometimes it's painful. Sometimes people like us, we get praised. Sometimes we get insulted, people don't like us. Sometimes we're respected, sometimes, you know, we're not. And it isn't a mistake, you know, when people don't like us. It's just that's how it is sometimes. And sometimes it's based on something we've done that was not appropriate. 
Sometimes the other person's just confused. We're actually really great. But the person just doesn't get it. But we don't need to make a problem out of that. If we can clarify the situation, then we clarify the situation. If it isn't worth clarifying or there is no way to clarify the situation, then we just let it be. But in any case, we don't need to add anything internally, psychologically. We don't need to construct an idea that it shouldn't be this way because it's unpleasant or that it should stay this way because it's pleasant. Because we know that things are coming and going. We really have gotten that because we're grounding the attention in the way that it is and we see how many pleasant things have come and gone. And they come and go lawfully due to the different conditions in our lives. And the unpleasant things, they come and go lawfully due to causes and conditions. A little bit more here. So that last sentence again, even though it may be extreme, whoops, I skipped ahead. Things arise and pass away in our mind, and we know this. When happiness arises, we know it. When dissatisfaction arises, we know it. And this knowing happiness means that we don't identify with it as being ours. When we no longer identify and cling to happiness and suffering, we are simply left with the natural way of things. So we say that mental activity is like the deadly poisonous cobra. If we don't interfere with a cobra, it simply goes its own way. Even though it may be extremely poisonous, we are not affected by it. We don't go near it or take hold of it, and it doesn't bite us. Another well-known <coughs> Thai forest master, Buddhist monk from the Thai forest tradition, a kind of a brother monk of Ajahn Chah said, mountains are only heavy if you try to lift them. It doesn't matter how heavy the mountain is. It's only a problem when you think you got to move it. But if you just let the mountain be the mountain, it's not really a problem. It's the same thing. It's just a different metaphor than the poisonous snake. A cobra is only a problem if you grab it. If you just let cobras alone, people alone, they're not really a problem. And this is the world. The world is only a problem. Being a human being with likes and dislikes, with pleasant and unpleasant experiences, which are inevitable when we're a human being and, a se- and sensitive, we see things, and the, because of the way our minds condition, some of the things we see we like, some of the things we see we don't like. Some of the things we think and remember we like. Some of the things we think and remember we don't like. Some of the things we touch we like. Some we don't like. Some of the things we hear we like. We don't like others. But the problem is when the mind grasps. So it has a sight it sees and it's pleasant or unpleasant. And it grasps the pleasantness of that sight. Or it grasps, identifies with the unpleasantness of that sight, that sound, that smell, that taste that thought, that touch. And then there's a problem that's like wanting to move them out because in that moment, right, it's already this way. It's already pleasant in the way that this moment is pleasant or it's already unpleasant in the way that this moment is unpleasant. So for the mind to construct an idea that I don't want it to be this way is like saying that mountain shouldn't be here and I'm responsible to move it. And then we got a problem. Or that poisonous snake shouldn't be here, and I'm going to grab it and do something with it. Well, then we got a problem. But if the mind has an unpleasant or pleasant experience, 
And is it second-guessing, like, oh, my life shouldn't have this happening? Well, where do we get that notion? Like, how do we come to that conclusion that it shouldn't be this way like it is right now? It's like a complete rejection of the lawfulness of causes and conditions. Like, this whole interdependent dynamic, it's just tumbling forward. And our own mind's conditioning, you know, and genetics and this body-mind, it's part of that interdependent unfolding that makes this moment just this way now. And so for some mind to say right now, oh, it shouldn't be this way, or I want this to last, is that's insane. Literally, it's insane. Because it means the mind isn't comprehending the way that it is. There is an unfolding. We do get to participate in that unfolding. But our way is very thin. How we can skillfully participate in the moment really has to do with right now relating with wisdom or relating with ignorance. When my mind or your mind or any mind is relating to this moment with wisdom, that means that it's mindful, it's present, it's grounded in reality in a continuous way. That allows for the comprehension. So it's really getting how it's unfolding, getting the innumerable causes and conditions, and getting that the only way to bring skillfulness to this moment is to be fully present and letting life, letting the unfolding of life, of experience, teach the mind Dhamma, the way it is. Like what works and what doesn't work. How taking, for example, how taking it personally never works. It doesn't matter if it's a neutral experience or a pleasant experience or a painful experience. When the mind takes it personally, it becomes toxic. It's a poisonous snake. And you can just see this. How many beautiful experiences we've had in our lives that we've ruined by taking them personally, taking the experience personally. How many unpleasant experiences we've made worse by taking it personally. She broke up with me. This cold weather is happening to me. They fired me. We take it personally. We construct a story, and that story is so hard to bear. It's not... I mean, it's bad enough to be fired or to lose a partner or... But to then construct a story that it happened to me and what that means to me, that makes it unbearable. Pain itself, the pain, the ordinary unavoidable pain of life and the ordinary unavoidable beauty and goodness in life is entirely bearable. Human beings have been doing this since the beginning of time. Just receiving and responding, giving and receiving, we sometimes talk about here at the center, to the moment, to the goodness and badness, the pleasantness or unpleasantness of the moment. Just one more sentence here. Let's see. A couple more sentences in this paragraph. Even though it may be extremely poisonous, we are not affected by it. We don't go near it or take hold of it, and it doesn't bite us. The cobra does what is natural for a cobra to do. Right? The world does what is natural for the world to do, because the world is unfolding in this very lawful, interdependent way. You can't necessarily read it all. Like, we don't 
you know, maybe if you're psychic, but we don't, we can't really read all the many different causes and conditions and know how it's all going to unfold. But we can see by just observing how it is lawful, lawfully unfolding because of causes and conditions. That's the way it is. If you are clever, you leave it alone. And so you let be what is good, that which is good. You also let be that which is not good. Let it be according to its own nature. So when we let something be that is not good, that is unpleasant, it means we're letting it be, but we're also letting the personality be. We're letting the response of the personality be. We're letting nature be let nature. So it's not about being passive when we're in pleasant or unpleasant or neutral experience. It means we're letting everything be. We're letting the personality that's responding also be. So we're, what are we taking refuge in? Not in the personality's response, but in the wisdom that understands. That is the one refuge we have as a human being. In a way, the body, the mind, the conditioned mind, the personality, all of that is just nature. It's just what it is. Did you order this particular personality, this particular set of genes that makes this body this way, or this particular upbringing? No. This is just the natural unfolding of nature. And nature's going to do what nature's going to do. Have you noticed that about your personality? And how much suffering we create because we don't want our personality to be our personality. We want something else. But it's this way. This is the way this heart, mind is conditioned. This is the kind of physical, genetic expression we have. It is insane to be in denial of this or to want it to be other than what it is. What's sane is to recognize this is just nature. Just like the weather, it's insane to sort of demand it to be different than it is. Because it's this way tonight, like this. And it's the wisdom we can take refuge in, wisdom that arises when we're clearly comprehending, when we're mindful, clearly comprehending. Then the mind, like Ajahn Chah says, it lets go of the world. It lets go of the cobra. It doesn't try to lift the mountain. And we realize that actually makes our life work so much better. Because there's no extra part of the mind that wants it to be different, wants it to last. It's just letting the life be the life that it is. Some poets have said things like, you know, letting life live through us. So Ajahn Chah says, if you are clever, you leave it alone. And so you let be that which is good. You also let be that which is not good. Let it be according to its own nature. Let be your liking and your disliking, right? So we're not trying to get rid of liking and disliking. You can't help it. When you see something, you're going to either like it or dislike it, or you're going to ignore it because it's neutral. It's the same with any sense contact, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, or thinking. It's either going to be pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, and there's really nothing we can do about that, because that is coming right out of our conditioning, and that conditioning is already the way that it is. And he ends here by saying, trust them the same way, or I'm sorry, treat them the same way you treat the cobra. Don't interfere. And later at the end of the chapter, he talks about this uh, metaphor that's used quite a bit in Buddhism about, I mean, it really goes to the very heart, you know, the, maybe the most important concept in Buddhism, in the teachings of the Buddha, is this word nirvana or nirvana. 
which means the extinction. It actually is the word, the common word used at the time of the Buddha to cool things down. Like, uh, evidently, at the time, you know, they'd make rice, and then you'd say, well, we have to let the rice nibbana, or some version of that word, cool off. And so when we let our life be our life, we let the pleasant moments be pleasant and the unpleasant moments be unpleasant and the neutral moments be neutral, our whole life cools down. The fires of greed, anger, and delusion, as the Buddha might say, they cool down into nibbana, into this awakened state. The awakened state, it implies that the mind is clearly aware, it's wise, wisely aware that Taking the pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral moments of our life personally heats things up. And then there's the experience of heat, which we call dukkha, or suffering, stress. The stress we experience arises because we take pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral personally. We are bored by neutral. We want the pleasant, and we want to get rid of the unpleasant. Now, Remember, we're, we're not talking about just being the, the great doormat of the world and bearing whatever comes your way, because that is dukkha. That resignation, that kind of passivity is a stance, a fixation. The mind thinks there's nothing I can do. There's pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, and there's nothing I can do, so I'm just going to bear it. I'm just going to give up. And that will cause a lot of suffering. So it's not about being passive in the world. It's about giving our life to the moment. The personality, the mind and body is responding. But the mind, this aspect of the mind, this what we call wisdom, remains free. It's like observing. It's not the best word, but it gives some of, some of the sense. Observing the personality, observing this life, living this life freely, because the mind isn't resisting the unfolding. And if this personality does something really stupid, then that wisdom sees, when you do this, you get that. And that makes an impression on wisdom, and wisdom never forgets that impression. And next time it's that same situation arises, the wisdom remembers, when you do this, you get that. Honey, don't do that. And that also is a natural thing. You don't have to do that wisdom, that wisdom move. It just happens because wisdom was there the last time. And it just gets recorded. As that's what nature does. It records things. Remembers. We don't have to try to remember. And so uh, Ajahn Chah at the end talks about this natural experience of heating up and cooling down. And this is how you get a lot of confidence in the teachings of the Buddha is you just observe naturally through your days how sometimes when ignorance is strong, when you're when you're allowing the mind to get identified with pleasant and unpleasant and neutral experience, you see how hot, how heavy everything gets. And then other times when the mind isn't so identified, you'll see how cooled down things get, how smooth, how light and buoyant everything gets. And you just keep observing that. And that... That is the dawning of the awakened state, or sometimes the enlightened state, although that's a word that the Buddha didn't use. <clears throat> Probably a better def, uh, de- a translation of that word, 
instead of translating the, the word as enlightened, awakened state, the mind is clearly seeing the way that it is and then living in accordance with what it's seeing. And then we learn from our mistakes and our successes. So the awakened state, the liberated state, the cool state comes when the mind starts to live in accordance. And that accordance means grasping, taking things personally, reacting, heats things up. The fires of suffering, of greed, anger, and delusion. It'd be nice to even tonight to share like your own experiences of picking up the cobra. How many little and big ways in your life, past and present today, have you picked up a cobra or tried to lift a mountain? And the question is, did you learn from it? Like, did you realize, oh, this hurts. This is suffering. There's got to be a better way. And maybe even intuit that way, like, that you could put this down. You could put down the snake. You could stop trying to lift the mountain. Be nice to hear examples, real life examples of doing this in your life. And just how that slowly, the mind is sort of dawning. It's dawning on the mind the way of being, the way of non-attachment. The way that Ajahn Chah liked to talk about Nibbana, he called it the reality of non-grasping. And this is good, because it's not even an activity of non-grasping. It's more the mind is awakening to this, this state of non-grasping. So what the mind is doing, it's ceasing the grasping. It's ceasing the struggle with pleasant and unpleasant experience. And that's the realization of non-grasping. If I try to not grasp, then it's now it's just another drama. It's another way of heating up the mind. That I can observe with wisdom my experience, and in that observation, the mind, it dawns in the mind, uh, grasping doesn't work. And the mind releases its habits of grasping, struggling, attaching, identifying. And it slowly, gradually realizes non-grasping. It realizes it's in the world with a personality, with responsibilities, with a life, brushing its teeth, eating food, having sex, having arguments, earning a living or not earning a living, but not grasping. So finding freedom in all of that activity as opposed to finding stress and second-guessing and neurotic activity and all that. So we have about 15 minutes. It'd be nice to hear from people what you've been learning. Yeah, Derek. Or any questions, too. Um, I'd be curious to know what you think about this story. Um, I had a business meeting that was kind of important. And Maybe a little bit louder. Oh, sorry. Um, I had a business meeting that was kind of important, and um, I got to it a little bit early, and was just uh, spending some time paying attention to my body. And I noticed that I was really geared up. My heart rate was up. Warm, and I could feel myself resisting that state of being excited, and was trying to like force myself to calm back down. Yeah. And that felt like the grasping the code. I was like, oh, don't be really worked up. That's no good. And I could feel myself getting more worked up in that attempt to try to squelch that. Yeah. But what felt really good was then just observing that and going, oh, my body knows this is important. It knows it needs to have a lot of blood pumping now to like be ready for what's happening. Just let that be that way. And that felt really good. Yeah, yeah that sounds right. Um, let's, can we shut the fan off? It's the switch above the thermostat.
and we'll be able to hear each other. I think we'll be fine for 10 minutes without it. Yeah. So you probably heard Derek hopefully, but uh, when we're in that state, like just to make it a little bit more pronounced, like we're panicking or uh, reacting, and it's so easy because on one level, skillfully, the mind recognizes this is suffering, you know, that this is problematic. But it can make a mistake there in thinking, i got to get rid of it. I want to be good. And this is not being good. This is being bad. Because I learned, you know, in Buddhism, that when you're attached and when you're struggling, you know, that's not good. That's suffering. So I'm going to get rid of that. So we add another layer of struggle on top of the struggle that's already going on. And we do that over and over again. And this is the thing. We're so blinded, we haven't really comprehended the problem. And that's what your story is really about, is that you had, the mind had some wisdom there. So it saw initially its attempt to squash, to sort of meet the struggle by struggling to get rid of it. And it saw the insanity of that. And then it dawned on the mind, well, maybe the best thing to do is just let nature be nature. And then, interestingly enough, things were better. And that's that insight, just to observe that very simple, ordinary experience. This probably happens to us in some degree a dozen times every day where we get a little caught up or stressed about something. And we can have the same thing, where we notice the inefficient attempt to squash it, get things back into control, and we see how that just exaggerates the pressure, the neurotic activity. And then we can see the resolution by trusting that just being aware is the best thing we can do. Because if there's a way for this energy to balance, being aware will support that. If there's nothing that can be done to bring the energy more to balance, but then there's nothing to be done. Let's not add anything to it, at least. Did you have more to say? Um, I was just curious, like, what what do we... um what would the teachings say about just getting excited about something? And then it's like we're going to dislike things, we're going to like things. Sometimes you're going to get excited by something. And just to not try to force yourself to not be excited about it. Right, but th- what you just said is cooling. It's not agitating. Yeah. You know, because you were speaking the truth, the Dhamma. Like your experience in observing your life has taught you that it's going to be this way sometimes. So by repeating that back to the mind, you're basically telling the mind, sometimes it's like this. Sometimes things are intense. Sometimes the heart beats. Sometimes there's fear. In other words, you don't need to add anything, a, a reaction to this, as if this is a problem. Sometimes it's just this way. So what I heard you saying is not like um, getting excited about something. What I heard you saying was like, Wisdom reflecting back the way that it is. So that's that continuity of mindfulness, the clear comprehension leading to wisdom. The wisdom that knows not to add anything to the experience of being hyped up. And that added something is the grabbing. Thinking it's good that you're hyped up or thinking that you're bad that it's hyped up. It's just being hyped up. And if that hyped up energy is able to sort of settle down, it will. But sometimes the conditions are such, you know, there are too many saber-toothed tigers around us, and it's just not going to happen, you know. So then the practice is not making a problem out of being scared out of our head, you know, but just being as 
free in that experience as it's possible to be. Thanks, Derek. Yeah. So your name again is it? Adrian. I was going to say Andrea, but. You know, one of, you know, some things are so charged and complicated, you know, like so many, uh, so many people's interests are playing into it, that it's, it's really, uh, it's, it's like a big wave. You know, we can handle little waves, but some big waves aren't so easy to handle. But one thing you can do is punctuate the drama. So instead of imagining that somehow you're going to get through this without no, without any drama, you know, that may not be so realistic. But what you might be able to find is that you can get really caught up in the drama and you can put it down. And get really caught up and put it down. So that might be, and it might be actually more realistic, like to tell your mind, I'm just not going to be upset about this. And then you fail because then in three minutes you're upset about it again. And then you kind of mistrust your practice or your mind, like I told you not to be upset about this and now you're back. Or you thought, I really, oh, I'm not attached. And then in five minutes, you run again, you see that you are attached. So what you could do is know that you're attached. Know that you, like, you want to take care of your mother-in-law, or you want her to like you, or you, you know, you want to take care of your mom so she has a meaningful experience, or whatever. You know, you don't want to lose your fiancé, or, you know, all these sort of things that are meaningful to you. But maybe you can just put them down for a few minutes. So this is what I mean by punctuating. It's not like you're going to try to convince yourself that you're not attached. But you just lie, literally lie down or sit down or stay still for a few minutes several times during the day, especially right when it's big. You just got off the phone, all these complications. And just say, okay, for three minutes, I'm just going to put it down. I'll pick it back up. And see, then the mind doesn't freak out like, oh, what do you mean you can't let this go? You know, this is happening to you or me. But you can put it down for a couple minutes and just drop it. And, you know, you can use just the sensations of resting, lying down, or just breathing, or just listening to the birds. Because what what can change the weight, the drama, getting through the, the wedding, isn't so much eliminating it or even making it less complicated. But it's, in a way, it's like making it porous. 
So it's still this huge facade, all these complicated details, balancing all these different people's, you know, interests or needs. So it's still this very complicated thing, but it's almost transparent. It's like taking the time to put it down. So if every day you put it down 10 times, 15 times, really drop it for a few minutes. So it's just not a drama in your mind. It comes back to put it down. That's what that relaxation or that other activity is. Then it's like it's becoming more porous and transparent. It's like it is complicated. It is a big deal. And yet on the other hand, you know, as you get closer, I put it down a thousand times already. So how real, how important, how tragic is it? It's just... So this is the thing about little moments of putting down the world. This is why sitting every day is so important. This is why having some activities you do every day, like walking from your car to your office, and you're just doing that. That's just what you've trained the mind. You're not doing anything else for that four minutes. You're just walking. Or when you get in your car before you turn the engine on, you just take 15 seconds and you, and the mind acknowledges just sitting. And you let go of everything for that 15 seconds. So these little moments of punctuating, learning to relax, learning to let go of the world, the world of our ideas of who I am, what I need to do, what's important, what's not important, and just taking a breath, hearing the sounds of the birds, feeling the body lying down or sitting. And that way, you're not trying to do this better. You're not trying to be better at not being attached to the wedding. You're just putting it down for moments at a time. And you'll see, I bet, that the whole thing gets a little lighter, a little bit more transparent. So complicated doesn't make it any less complicated, but it just has less weight because of all those little moments of putting it down, putting it down, putting it down. Same thing with your relationship with your partner. You know, because relationships, as at least from what I've discovered, you can't figure them out. There's no way to, like, get it. Okay, now I got it. And so to really put it down, like, I'll never know whether it's a good relationship or a bad relationship, whether it's going to last forever ever, or won't last forever, whether he or she was the right person or not the right person. So just to put it down, like, I'm okay with it being ambiguous. I'm okay with not knowing whether it's good or bad whether the wedding's going to turn out well or not. So just that practice of putting it down might help. Good luck. Yeah, I think it's just language here is important. So when we talk about grabbing the cobra, we're talking about an identification. So if we see, <clears throat> like, there's so much oppression and so much greed and aversion being acted out in our immediate circles and then, of course, in the world at large, and in very real suffering clearly is going on all over the place. And when we see that, when we're not so busy and we're willing to just feel, see that, the heart wants to respond to it naturally, appropriately. Some of the times the way our heart responds is we get attached. 
Like, and often these are the people who do, a, you know, and I'm speaking about myself. We complain a lot, we judge a lot, we judge the politicians, and we get all worked up. But we're not really part of any solution. We all we have is the attachment piece. You know, all we have is grabbing the cobra, and we're not really responding to the situation at hand. So there's a big difference between grabbing the cobra and letting the heart, mind, and body respond organically, naturally to the suffering we see close at hand or in the world at large. It's very different. But what we've done, part of the misperception in our lives is we've equated getting all worked up with responding. And we can see that you can respond without getting worked up. And you can respond in big ways. Like one of the things that's so interesting, and you know, I know Martin Luther King wasn't a perfect person, and sometimes we tend to idolize these leaders. But he was very intelligent about getting things done. Whether he knew it consciously, or whether it was just some intuitive understanding, you know, non-conscious understanding that he had. But you know, he talked a lot about doing the work out of love, you know, this, and that's where the nonviolence came in too. This, this understanding that, you know, the oppression of people of color today and especially back then, you know, it was so real and so worthy on the surface, so worthy of anger and rage and hate. And he spent so much time talking about like, that's not how we're going to do this. That's not going to work. Because he was trying, I think, trying to to separate the emotional reactivity, the construction of me who is violated by your hate, by your, you know, segregation or your rules or your prejudice, separate the hate from the response. So how can we respond to something that's clearly wrong How can that be an organic, a movement of nature, instead of me hating you for your ignorance? And that's what we have to do in our life, in little ways and big ways. We have to separate the ignorance, the identification with the suffering that we see in the world and close at hand, our identification from the movement of the heart that cares and wants to do something, that wants to respond. And that's hard because uh, the hatred, the anger, seems so big, much, it seems bigger. So it gets our attention. And the movement of the heart is more subtle. So that's why the initial emphasis is not being fooled by the anger. Anger is the cobra. It doesn't help. Hating politicians who are ignorant doesn't help. It just causes a contraction in our heart to hate them. They're just nature, acting out according to their causes and conditions. The question is how to participate in this play of nature, in this movement of nature, in a way that leads to different results. That's the important thing. And anger is not the way. Because, basically, the the people who are leading, uh, causing the world to go into states of suffering, they're the ones, we're the ones, who are acting out of anger and greed. And then we get the world like it is. So we need a different, to come from a different place. So the first thing, first, you know, the most important thing is first to break that cycle where we're coming out of greed, anger, and delusion. 
and start to relate and respond from some other place than greed, anger, and delusion. And that's a hard thing because people just want to fix something, but they don't see the underlying cause. The underlying cause is that human beings are responding with greed, anger, and delusion. So what can we do that's not coming out of greed, anger, and delusion? Well, first and foremost, we can feel what we feel. Oh, it really hurts to see how many people are suffering. It really hurts to see the oppression in the world. We have to leave it here. It's 9 o'clock. Just take a few seconds. Let go of the words. Time for at least one breath together. Appreciating the silence. Feeling the peace in the heart. Being okay with the don't know mind, letting go of the words. And of course, inspired to be a cause for peace in our hearts and in the world. Letting our life be a teacher, teaching us how to be free and how to set in motion the causes for freedom and peace. And may this be so. Thanks everyone for coming. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.